This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 283. And the quote of the day is, we all die. The goal isn't to live forever. The goal is to create something that will. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. This is Nick Ruffini, and you're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast. This is Session 283. Thank you for, for listening in. Uh, for me, this is this is a somber day, uh, remembering John Blackwell, who passed away on July 4th. And I have been honored to have him on the podcast and to get to know him through the podcast. And there were some other talks of maybe him writing a book and me helping him with that. So... Uh, I don't want to oversell the idea that John and I were extremely close by any means, but we did get to know each other through the podcast. And I think I speak for everyone when I say that his playing, his style, his sense of groove and the impact that he's left on the drumming world is beyond measurable. Um if you're not too familiar with his work, he was born in Columbus, uh, South Carolina. I started playing drums when he was three. Went to Berkeley School of Music, was playing with Patti LaBelle, met Prince, and most notably was in Prince's band for more than 12 years. And he was on tour, um, and they found out that he had a brain tumor, cancer, and he lost his battle uh, again on July 4th. So... This interview is from 2015, and there are a few reasons why I'm re-releasing it. One, uh, this interview is pretty deep in the archives. Again, it's it's number 95, and we're on 283. So there's a lot of new listeners to the podcast who may have not gone that far back into the catalog to find this gem of an interview. Uh, that's number one. Number two, I'm doing it because um, Justin could work on it and and make it sound a lot better because back then I was doing all the editing and mixing and everything myself. And I wanted the sound quality to, to be better. Three, just to honor John's legacy and and get the amazing information that he shares in this interview out there to more people again there's more listeners and also uh, this is this is almost 2 hours long so this is a very in-depth interview John go talks about all sorts of things and it's just truly amazing and I wanted to share it all with you in memory and honor of the late John Blackwell Jr. He was born September 9th, 1973, and unfortunately passed away very early, uh, July 4th, 2017. So without further ado, the one and only John Blackwell. John, what's going on, my man? Thanks so much for doing this. Oh, no, thank you. Uh, real honor to be on Drummer's Resource. Man, it is it is great to have you. I've been a I've been a huge fan of yours for for many many years, as I know that the listeners have as as well. So it's really really great to have you. Uh, it's, yeah, I appreciate it. You know, it's a long you know been a long road and a whole lot more to go. <laughs> well, that's uh, that's a good segue because I always like to get a bit of backstory from my guests to to talk a little bit about where they where they came from, how they started playing and uh you know how they shaped their career. So just tell us a little bit about about how you got into all this. Um it's 
you know, um, I got into it through my dad, you know, Mm -hmm. actually going even further back uh, to my grandfather, who he wasn't a drummer, but he wanted to be a drummer. And his favorite drummer was Gene Krupa, Mm -hmm. which was a favorite of mine as well. And uh, when my dad was um, born, you know, not too long after, you know, he he started with, you know, buckets and pots and pans. Mm-hmm. So then, of course, from there, he uh, started his own, you know, he started his own band with a few friends at high school. You know, the rest is history from there. You know, he went on to uh, play with a lot of people like uh, Joe Tex and played with King Curtis and Mary Wells and Drifters, played with the Spinners, I believe, and and um, uh, few more artists, uh, Joe Simon, J.J. J.J. Jackson. I mean, he played with a lot of people, you know, around. I know he did some things in New York, and, and a lot of artists, when they came through South Carolina at a later time, you know, he was the he was the go-to guy for for them to use, if they didn't bring their own band, they would put together a band, and he was always the drummer that was called. Mm-hmm. So you know that's you know how he started, and and that's John Blackwell Senior. You know I'm Junior. You know, and when I was born, you know, you know around age three, you know he bought me a a, a Junior Professional drum set. You know it was it was it wasn't one of those Sears sets where you put your finger on the head and it busts like <laughs> the paper as soon as you heads. touch it. Yeah, as soon as you <laughs> touch it, it just busts. It was actually a real, real uh, junior professional kit. It was just you know, uh, you know, it's fit the fit for uh, you know a little for a little kid. Right, know, right, right. It had all the all the qualities of a professional kit. Um, you know, and my favorite music during that time was you know always listening to James Brown and. Mm-hmm. And uh, listening to the Commodores. And matter of fact, when when he set up my set for Christmas time, when I when he bought it, you know, as soon as I got on the kit, the first thing I the first thing I played was Brick House. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, not 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 just hitting this or hitting that. <laughs> you know, for somebody to say, "Oh, that's so cute." No, I was actually playing the actual beat, and I can remember. Um, my uncle and my dad were standing. You know, they were so. You know, for for a little for a three year old, they they were very they were giants. You know, mm-hmm. and I remember looking up while I was playing, and my uncle looked at my dad, and my dad had a serious look on his face. You know, and my uncle said, "You know what, Johnny? I think this kid's. I think this kid has something." Hmm. And my dad was like, "Yeah." You know, like, <laughs> you know, I, that's what I remember, you know. So, right. you know, from that point on, he always would take me to the take me to the living room. And uh, which, you know, he took over the living room. My, my mother didn't have a living room because that's where all the drums were set up. Right. You know, so <laughs> he would always take me in there and let me watch him practice. And then after he would finish practicing, he would give me the sticks and leave me in a room to myself. You know, he wouldn't let, he wouldn't stay in there. He would basically, you know, from watching him is how I learned how to play. Mm-hmm. You know, paying attention to everything that he did on the kit. Mm-hmm. And then also, you know, listening to records all the time, you know, remembering what the drummer did. Right. Do you think that less people are listening now than used to? 
Um, no, uh, I, I, I don't think so. I mean, I, I think it's more, the thing is that, and this is just my opinion from, mm-hmm. and it's only, it's only because of what I see and what I'm hearing is that the young, the young drummers, they're, they're, they're all they want to do is play, you know, the, the slickest technical pattern, a chop as you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Or they want to see how fast they can play. Right. You know, they want to see how fast they can go around the kid. And, 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 and I understand. I was, I was, I was, at, I, you know, when I was a kid, I, you know, I, <laughs> I was going to say, you have no shortage of chops yourself. <laughs> but, 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 you know, the thing to me is most importantly is staying in the pocket and, 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 you know, playing the song. Mm hmm. You know, and and I had to learn. Sure, I had I had to learn. Sure, you know, being around, you know, all the groups I've been around. You know, mm-hmm. I I had to learn that it's about the song, not about you. Right. You know, a lot of, a lot of these young guys get get a gig, and you know, it it, it, it tends to be instead of the the Beyonce show, it, they feel like it's the you know. I, John Doe show, or right? Whatever, you the know. drummer show, yeah. It's, it's, the, it's the Joe Blow show. You know, right. if his name was Joe Blow, it, he thinks it's his show. He's like, he's like oh wow, twenty two thousand people coming to see me play the best chop I can play without listening to the band and playing over the singer. That's right. what they're coming to see. Yay! <laughs> and it's not that you know you do that, and then they gonna they wonder why you. uh get sent home. Right. <laughs> so I yeah. I have a question for you. So I was fortunate enough to when I was growing up to be around a lot of older musicians to sort of uh you know whip me into shape so to speak and tell you know don't do that, don't play like this, play in the pocket, don't overplay uh as you were too. So now what advice do you have for people that that don't have that group of musicians around them or that are just coming up and they really want to learn how to play in the pocket, but all they see on YouTube and Instagram and, and everywhere else is just people playing chops everywhere. Uh, um, I would say, um, listen, you know, listen, listen to records. You know, a lot of the stuff you see on, um, YouTube or, or videos or Instagram is, is live situations, mm-hmm. live situations. Um, and it's better to listen to, uh, what was done on record, which would be more studio stuff, mm-hmm. you know, studio things. And, you know, um, you know, I would, I would say, listen to somebody like James Brown, you know, listen to Clyde Stubblefield and John, John Jabo Starks, or, um, listen to some old Steely Dan records with Steve Gadd and Bernard Purdy and, and, um, Billy Cobham, you know, mm-hmm. you know, when it, you know, Billy, you know, yeah, Billy. Billy's a monstrous, you know, you know, technical guy, but he had a serious groove too. Yes, he did, or does, yeah. I should say, and does, you know, yeah. still does. Yeah, I mean, straight pocket, you know. I mean, he he's he's the guy for an ex- a good example of somebody who knows when and when not to. Right. And plus, having your own band, you know, especially having your own band and having the authority to do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it he still stuck with it when and when not to 
Right. It still does. And there's a huge there's a huge responsibility that comes with that too, knowing that yeah. it's your band because you're not going to get fired. Right. You know, right. so you can you can play whatever you want and and chop it up as much as you want. You know, the fact that he did that speaks volumes about his playing and the and the maturity of of his playing. You know, and 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 as well as being a great songwriter. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, Harvey Mason, another prime example of mm-hmm. somebody who could uh, you could listen to far as uh, knowing knowing when and when not to. Uh, another guy that I look up to that I met through my dad, you know, but I was so small during that time, I never really had a chance to actually have a conversation with him. But uh, my dad and this guy was good friends, uh, uh, the late, great Yogi Horton. Mm. You know, a lot of people have, have forgotten about him. Yeah, but, unfortunately. But the ones that know... No, I mean, and unfortunately, they listen to him, don't even know it's him. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Yogi's has graced records with B-52s, uh, Bob James, uh, you know, uh, Luther Vandross, Asher and the Simpson, and Diana Ross, you know. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, uh, it was either him or Tony Thompson that did the uh, song I'm Coming Out. Uh, with, with a, I don't know who, a, I know I know the tuners of the... Yeah, the yeah. beginning with the drums at the beginning. Yeah, I'm, I wonder who that. You know, all that stuff was just like historical to me. I, I still listen to that song, and I'm just like, man, you know. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I only listen to the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I, you know, what can, what can you say after that? After that drum intro, right. Uh, it was. It was. It was Tony Thompson. Oh, so it was Tony. Yeah, I just looked that up. Yep. But Tony, uh, Tony and Yogi had a similar style. That's why I kind of get them uh, confused. But um, Yogi did do uh, Upside Down. Oh, uh, okay. I know that too, too. Yeah. Which was, was solid groove on there. Right. You know. But uh, yeah, man. You know, that's those are the guys that you want to listen to. And and I'm not saying not to study chops. You, you know, get all the chops you can. Just reach for the sky. You know, right? You know, see how far you can can go with your your technical skills, and see how fast you can go to warp five speed around the kit. Right. But just don't. I've seen I've seen drummers play over the singer, and I'm just like, and I'm not saying no names. I'm just like, why? Why are you doing that? You right. Know? Right. And you know, it's. I heard Daniel Glass told me this a long time ago. He said, "Man, do you want to be the you know? Do you if you're doing 65 miles an hour, do you want to be in the Ferrari where you have a bunch of headroom, or in the Pinto that you got the pedal all the way to the floor and that's as fast as you can possibly go?" So I agree that you want those chops, you want that headroom, you want to be able to express yourself any way that any way that you want to. Um, and I think that that's where the the technical ability and the chops really. Um, can help you define your sound. But at the same time, like to echo what you're saying is that you don't want to just be shopping around the kit the whole entire time and, you know, stepping on everybody else's toes. Yeah. I mean, I can understand, you know, you know, you don't want to just be a timekeeper, you mm-hmm. know, just every, everyone has something to say. And, and back in the, back in the days, the drummer never got a chance to do that until they started taking a rebellious um, stand to to come to the front. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Art Blakey is a great example of somebody who said, all right, we're going to take the drums from back there being a timekeeper. We're going to bring them to the front. Right. You know, because we got something to say, too. Mm-hmm. But he knew when and when not to. Mm-hmm. That's that's the subject, you know, when and when not to. Right. Those right. are the key words that, that young drummers should pay attention to today. Right. And maybe maybe they wouldn't have this uh, uh, reputation of somebody just chopping just to chop and say, hey, look at me. Right. Hey, look, Ma, no hands. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I'll be the first one to admit it that years ago, I remember watching uh a clip on YouTube uh, or no, it wasn't on YouTube. It was on uh it was like a, it was a VHS of the Steve Jordan DVD or VHS tape. The groove is here and he's playing these grooves. And I was like, eh, it doesn't really do anything for me. I don't really get it. You know? And I remember seeing like other drum videos of people freaking out around the kit. And I was like, yeah, that's what I want to do. And now it's the complete opposite. I could sit there. I just, all I want to do is just, watch Steve Jordan and watch, you know, uh, Steve Gadd and, and all those guys, I get so much more satisfaction out of hearing these really, really thick, simple grooves than I do somebody just like, you know, but, but, and, and, and I'm glad you said that because I, I had the same situation where all I wanted to do was just try to figure out how fast I could play. Mm Mm-hmm. And how fast I can do this or do that. And then one day, um, I was jamming with uh, when when I was jamming with you know one one day jamming with Prince or uh, matter of fact, I can even go further back with you know when when I was with Cameo, you know where I I had never had a solo in that show. Mm-hmm. No solos were allowed in the show with Cameo. Larry Blackman, the leader of Cameo, who 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 is a drummer or one of the best drummers. I've ever seen in my time. Uh, you know, he said a solo. I read this in Modern Drummer, you know, way before I even got with Cameo. You know, mm-hmm. Larry said a drum solo to him sounds like a bunch of bunch of rocks rolling down a hill. <laughs> no, really, you yeah. know, blah 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 blah. Like know. tennis shoes in a dryer. <laughs> you can't you can't dance to a solo, right? Unless the solo was a song. If it was, if it was, if it was. If it was a story, you know, I mean, that's another thing that's missing. Nobody's telling stories. They're just playing what they figured out or what they discovered or what they created. They just play it. Mm-hmm. But there's no story based around it. It's, you got to tell a story. I don't, within the song, or if you're just creating a solo, it has to have a, a beginning, middle, end, you know? Mm-hmm. It's got to have a conclusion. It's got to have a beginning and a conclusion. Right. You know, mm-hmm. but nobody's doing that. You know, I mean, I listen to a lot of Elvin Jones and Elvin always told a story within the song mm-hmm. and it was connected to the song. So it was a part of the song. His right. solo was a part of the song. Playing the melody. Cause he, yeah. Cause he never drifted from the met- medley, you know? Mm-hmm. So, you know, that that's, that's missing. That's something else that's missing in solos and, and and music just generally that's what's missing with the drummer mm-hmm. i think i can't remember if it was was it a steve gadd interview but it may have been and and they were like you know how do you know what to play and he's like well i just the song dictates what i play exactly i don't create these parts out of thin air 
You know, exactly. he's like, I just I play whatever the what whatever the song dictates I should play. And that's that's true. But as well, he played from the heart. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. he played from the heart. It's what what I do. I play from the heart. Mm-hmm. But I also stick with the song. It's, right. it's, it, Prince Prince put it best to me and and the previous band New Power Generation. He always told us we're 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 a basketball team. Right. Who and said this? Per- Prince. Oh, okay. I, I didn't hear who you said. Yeah, he once told he once told us that you know we're we're a basketball team. You know, look at look at it like the Chicago Bulls or the Lakers. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Kobe's not the only one out there. Uh, right. Michael Jordan's not the only one out there. You know, if one person fumbles, then we all fumble. Right. Right. So I like that analogy too. Yeah, and. I can say the day I see a lot of lot of people <laughs> dropping the ball. Right. You know, a lot a lot of these young cats dropping the ball. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fumble. Yeah, hey man, pass the ball. No, I got it. I got it. Oh, right. pass. Hey, come here. Oh no. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to be a ball hog on the stage. Yeah, you know? but that's 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 what's going on. Right. A lot a lot of not everybody, but there's a couple people out there ball hogging. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, now we talk about that a lot on the podcast. I mean, I've done. And, what, and what's, bad, what's sad is the, the drummers that are looking up to some of these drummers love the ball hogging. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, really. I mean, oh, yeah. man, that's, I got all oh, the chops. Oh, man, chop, chops. Man, I love chops. You yeah. Know? Groove, oh, that's, uh, that's boring. It's boring. Yeah. I don't want to groove. Right. <laughs> I want to be like that guy playing all those chops. Well, the guy's not getting hired either. So, hey, yeah. What was sad is they're getting hired and, and still getting hired. And meanwhile, the guys that can can lay it down and, and make you sound ten times better than the guy that's playing all those chops are the ones that are that are not getting called as much. Right. Which once again turns into another situation where a lot of lot of lot of guys are backstabbing to get gigs and they degrade their value just to get the artist to hire them over the guy that should be doing the job. Yeah. That's not cool. Well, that's, you know, that's, that's called over hungry. You know, everybody's hungry, but then there's some guys that are just so hungry to, they, they will, you know, do some backstabbing to get, get the job. Mm -hmm. Oh man, he's doing that for a thousand. I do it for 500. Right and uh, and what's bad is the artist. Oh, five hundred. Mm. Well, <laughs> save me. I can buy me some steaks every night with that. All right. All right. Yeah, you got the job. Don't worry about the other guy. We don't worry. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then they get on tour and they they fin- they figure out. Oh man, maybe I should have hired that other guy. Yep. He grooves more. Yeah. This guy's just all over the place. All over the place. You know. Right. You can't and you can't control. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now there, there was something that well, two things that I want to I want to talk about. One, you touched on um, the idea of going back to the solo about you know how someone like Elvin Jones or Art Blakey or somebody like that um, played the melody and, and played the be- a beginning, a middle, and an end to their solo. So how do you suggest that people practice that sort of thing? Because we talk about this a lot on the podcast that that people aren't playing melodically and, and are just chopping all over the place. But I want to boil it down a little bit more because I want to help people get better. So how, how right. do you suggest that people practice this and start to learn this skill? I mean, I'm, I'm, 
in agreement with you. I, I mean, I, I, I'm saying all this because I, I'm not, I'm not shooting young drummers down. I want, I, I want young drummers to um, get better as well mm-hmm. and and get drums back on the right course. So, so, uh, so to answer the question, uh, yeah, you know, listening for me, listening to somebody like Elvin Jones. Who, who was very melodic, you know, I would listen to that. And from that point, try to, you know, it's not, it's, it's, it's not hard. You know, you, you make some kind of medley and you build from that medley and bring it back to that medley at the end. Mm-hmm. You know, um, also, uh, my, one of another hero of mine, I mean, I was a hero to me. Another hero is somebody I just can't get enough of. I mean, I can't get enough of Elvin either, but I can't get enough of Tony Williams. Yeah, me neither. You talking about melodic and and could play a song with just the drums. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I mean, Tony's another another guy that you could listen to for being how you know knowing how to to tell a story on the drums. Yeah, and um, and just play melodically. You know, his single stroke rolls from one time to the other because. You know, he tuned them to notes, mm-hmm. which was like awesome. You know, I mean, I mean, I, I have perfect pitch, so because of that, I try to, you know, um, I try to tune my drums to certain chords or whatever, mm-hmm. and and that would be my way of trying to, you know, play something melodic and tell a story with that. You know, every every night is a different key. You know, for me, I don't stay in one key all the time. Hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I discovered. I mean, well, my high school band director was the one that discovered this. You know, he, you know, back in high school, we had a concert band. You know, which is we would play like classical music, and he would always put me on the timpanis and. Um, he figured he kind of was scratching his head at me every day, and I was wondering why. And he finally couldn't take it no more. And he said, John, um, you know what? I give you music and I give you the key, and I tell you to go to the piano and tune the timpanis to these keys I'm telling you to tune them to. But I tell you to go to the piano, but you never go. And he said, I want you to turn around, close your eyes, and I'm going to play something on the piano, and I want you to tell me what note it is. So he would play a key and I would tell him the exact note that he's playing. Hmm. And he said, well, maybe that's just an accent. He right. played another key, played another key, played another key. And he said, oh man, just great. And I was like, what are you talking about? He said, oh no, just <laughs> a, a, what a waste. A drummer with perfect pitch. <laughs> and I was like, perfect. What is perfect pitch? And then he told me what it was. And I was like, oh, okay. I guess I got it. Right. And that go that goes back to listening to songs, you know, where I when I when I was when I was a little kid, ever since I can remember, whenever I heard a song, whatever key it was, I would always see colors, you know, hmm. which I think they call that synthesia or something. Like it's some weird word. But some people call it color tones. And so no matter when, if the key was in C, if the song if the song was in the key of C, I always see a, a certain color. 
And when that song, if another song came on the Kia C, that same color would always, I would always see that same color. Really? Song was in, yeah. I mean, so I, I kind of did something a couple years later when I found out I had it and I always see these colors, these same colors. I, I chromatically figured out the chromatically I, I, I put colors with every key. I mean, with every, every note chromatically that I would see, you hmm. know, which is the same situation, which is why when I'm playing drums, it, it all depends. I, I might tune my drums to a certain chord in a certain key. That's know? amazing. Yeah. So you can, so that way you knowing what, you're, you're tuning to and you can it, it makes it more easier for you to create you know something real beautiful out of out of the out of the drums hmm. yeah it's called uh synesthesia yeah, yeah 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 i just looked it up that's amazing huh. i you know and i've heard of i've heard of people sort of seeing different things when they're playing and once in a while i'll see different shades of colors but not like that i mean that's just like <laughs> you're on yeah. you're on like a whole different level with it yeah, you know I'm once a, in a while I'm, i can I'm, see like I'm a, a little mood. cuckoo <laughs> <laughs> i'm a little crazy <laughs> that's all right we're all a little crazy somebody dropped me on my head so you know <laughs> i thank them for it <laughs> yeah yeah no doubt i would be too that's hey, amazing though Thanks a lot for dropping me on on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> now I hear colors. <laughs> yeah, now I see colors. <laughs> I, I I don't know if this is true, but I heard Billy Cobham has it. Oh, really? Yeah, I think he has uh, the same thing. That would make sense. Yeah, matter of fact, when I was at Berkeley, some people put me. Some people put some of us. Some some of the people that had the same situation, they put us in a in a circle together in in, in music in um in um in our ear training class. And, um, and it was kind of crazy when uh, I would talk to another person in the circle, what color you, what color you see when you hear, uh, E flat? Oh, I see this color. And, and I'll be like, Oh, that, oh, you see that? And they say, well, what do you see when you hear E flat? I hear, I see this. Uh, and they'd be like, Oh yeah. You know, <laughs> that's so crazy. Yeah. That's nuts, man. That I, I'm sure that 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 totally enhances what you're feeling when you're playing as well, because you can see yeah. all these things happening. So you have oral and visual stuff going on at the same time. Yeah, I don't know if Tony had it, but Tony definitely, Tony definitely. I mean, I don't. I mean, whenever he, whenever he did solos on certain songs, those 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 the times were always tuned to the key of the song. Mm-hmm. Which you know, either he did it by piano, or he actually probably had perfect pitch himself. Yeah, you know. he. I mean, he had something. <laughs> yeah, he had something. Just, yeah, you know. it's amazing. Yeah, so, so sorry. I, I, you know, sometimes I get on the subject. I tend to go. <laughs> hey man, that's what we're here for. I'm, yeah, this is yeah. this is fascinating to me too. This this blows yeah. my mind. I do want to uh, I do want to switch it up a little bit because yeah, I, yeah, I want to yeah, yeah. I want to talk about um, it. I'm really interested to see how your how your journey went. You know, from from playing to uh, you know in your teens to high school and then Berkeley and and getting the Prince gig and and all of that stuff. So c- let's just walk down that line a little bit because I know that there's a lot of people out there that are. A thinking about going to a music school because I get a lot of questions about that, and B are trying to get you know bigger 
bigger name tours and, and play with, with higher acts or play with what more well-known acts. So let's talk about that a little bit and try to give some, give some knowledge to the listeners. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, um, being that I've been playing since three, you know, my, my journey began there. And also my dad would take me to every soul music concert that, came through Columbia, South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, at an early age, I got a chance to, matter of fact, the first concert I ever seen was uh, Sister Sledge. Nice. Uh, we Are Family Tour. Nice. And matter of fact, uh, speaking of that, the drummer, who I think he's married to one of the Sister Sledge um, sisters, he came up to me at NAMM show because I told this story before and he said, you remember that drummer you said you saw? on the big riser in front of 10,000 people. At, he, I said, yeah. He said, that was me. So I got a chance to meet this guy uh, at NAMM show a couple years back. And I was like, oh, my God, wow. This just happened to me. I just interviewed somebody a couple weeks ago. And the first yeah. first concert I ever went to, um, sad to say, was a Vanilla Ice concert. And, <laughs> and Steve yeah. Williams was playing drums. Yeah. I didn't know it was him, though. I'm interviewing him. And in the middle of the interview, I find out that he's the dude that inspired me to start playing drums. Right, right. It's amazing. Right, amazing. Yeah. So so when I was a kid, you know, I, when I was I was two years old. So I, I really was still in the sleep mode where I was couldn't stay awake all night <laughs> watching watching much as I loved to watch. You know, I was falling asleep. I woke up at the end. And they're they're like having the whole audience clapping to we are family and the drummer's killing you know and he's on this big ten foot riser you know back back in the day he just had the drummer way up in the air so yeah he was on he's on this big riser playing and uh and uh, I'm and when I woke up I'm looking at him I'm looking at the the band and and the audience and I started looking at the audience counterclockwise I'm looking at the whole audience and this. The place is packed, 10,000 people strong. And at that moment, I said, this is what I want to do. Hmm. So from that point on, you know, I would always practice in the in the family room on the drums when my dad would allow me to. And I would actually pretend that the living room was an arena. Huh. I mean, I'm talking about everything from, you know, of course, I would put a record on Mm-hmm. And I would play on top of the drummer. You know, everybody always tells me that I don't forget things. So my, they say my memory's real, really strong. So I would mimic the drummer note for note on the record and play on top of him. Hmm. You know, you know when I had record playing. Then of course when the box came around. You know when the tape cassettes and right. stuff came around. I did it with that and also with uh, CDs and stuff. And I would play on top of the drummer. You know, note for note. But what I, what I, what I would also do as well, when I since since a young age, um, is I would go into the bathroom, and I would pour water on my face, like if I was sweating or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, this it sounds stupid. Or no, crazy, I don't but, think it sounds but, stupid at all. But that showed how hungry I was to be in in this to be where I am now. I right. would say. Right. And, you know, one of the things that they that is always mentioned when, 
you talk about people who have had great success in anything, whether it be business or music or anything like that, is the power of visualization. And a lot of people say that they visualized, you know, being this millionaire or owning this business or being on this huge stage well before it ever happened. And they talk about how your subconscious doesn't matter what you feed it, whether it's true or false, it, it believes anything that you feed it. So right. you can visualize all of these successes and, 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 you know, attaining all of these things well before it happens. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's what happened because every time I would go into the room, I would always put my hand over my mouth and I would like, yeah. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and then I would also say, we're going to give you one more song. This is our biggest hit, and we love you all for it. And I put the record on and play on top of the drummer. And after the song is over, I'll say, "We love you. Good night." <laughs> and I would walk out of the room, and I used to act like I had bodyguards and everything. And my mom in the kitchen cooking and seeing me doing this, and she's like, "Oh my god, maybe maybe that drop on the head was a little too hard." <laughs> this dude's crazy. <laughs> but no matter what, I did it. Every day, right? And something I used to get in trouble for. I used after seeing these concerts that my dad would take me to. The next day, I'm in school, and the history teacher or the English teacher tells us to write a paragraph or whatever. And she returns to the to the room. I'm in there. I'm not. I'm not doing my work. I'm. I'm drawing. I'm drawing what the stage. The I'm drawing the, the stage and the lights. <laughs> And the drummer on the riser, and I'm drawing all that stuff. Nice. And then when she comes and checks everybody's paper, she sees <laughs> she sees me drawing some concert. And she's like, <laughs> go to the office. Go to the principal's office. <laughs> and so I used to get in trouble, you know. But uh, so so that that's what I did during the elementary days. And I think my fifth grade, I had a um, we had a talent show. So everybody came up to do something for the talent show and my 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 um presentation was me and my sister who who was also talented um back then she played piano me and my sister would play chopsticks on the piano and we brought my dad there to play drums and he brought he set up his whole big gigantic white rogers kit you know when mm-hmm. rogers was like still the the thing to have. My right, dad right. had a large white Rogers kit. So we played chopsticks and he played drums and chopsticks. Of course, we would turn them loose and then he did this big drum solo on the drums and then he gave me the sticks and I did a drum solo. And that was, you know, for that. You know, and then <laughs> on to middle school, you know, I'm going to fast forward through this. You know, middle school, it was, you know, always playing the concert band and, and, um, then the seventh grade, um, I think Egyptian Lover came out. I don't know if you remember that song. I don't. Who's that by? Egyptian Lover. Da 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 da. No. Hold on. Da 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 It was called Egyptian Lover. That was big. So there was this talent show that happened every year, and everybody would do Michael Jackson, Prince, or whatever. Then of course, that was Greg uh, Broussard. Yeah, yeah. Then some friends of mine, some friends of mine, uh, who went on to be a big basketball player. His name is Andre Bovane and uh, Cedric, and all these guys. They they was beatboxing and rapping and 
Run DMC or whatever, you know. I came out there. Sheila E was Sheila E was huge at this point too when mm-hmm. she came out with uh Glamorous Life with Prince. Uh. Um and she had the Timbales. So my band, um, we came out there and there was a, there was Sean Johnson. I, I I can't believe I remember these guys' names. It was Sean Johnson, Therium Greer, uh Therium Theorem was on saxophone. Mike Mike Oswald. Man, I can't believe I remember their names. <laughs> you know, that's the drop on the head. Um, Mike Oswell <laughs> and Kenny Weeks on snare drum. And I was on two snare drums. I didn't have no timbales. I, I had my two Ludwig concert band snares. And I would just turn the snare strands off. And I was in front of, I was in the front and everybody was behind me. We, we originally called ourselves the Egyptian Lovers. But later we changed it to uh, Johnny Boy and the Revolution. <laughs> like Prince and the Revolution. We called ourselves Johnny Boy and the Revolution. Nice. And we, we did Egyptian Lover, but in the middle of it, it was like da 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 And I would say ticka 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 do. And then they would then the Mike and Theron would stop playing horns. And it would just be the drums, doom, doom. And I would do a, a Sheila E type drum solo on the on the two snares that I made sound like timbales. Nice. And we actually after after when the crowd was laughing at us at first, mm-hmm. it was like ah. And my sisters in the audience talking, y'all stop laughing at my brother. But then <laughs> when we started playing, and we and when I did that drum solo. On the timbales with the drums, just doing the beat, doom, 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 you know, everybody was like, ah. <laughs> so it was it, at the end. It was a draw. It was between either me and the band, or Andre Robain and the rapper, his friend that were rapping with him, <laughs> and we had we had to do a um, we had to do a tie off to see who would win out of the two. And we won. Nice. And we actually had got a chance to do other shows at other areas, like did something for a festival at a park. And it didn't go far, but, you know, for that moment in time, it was just like, wow, you know, we, we won talent show and we got a chance to do some other shows. Wow, That's this awesome. is great. Yeah. So then, of course, high school was marching band. And well, I met one of my um, first uh, teachers, uh, other than my dad, uh, drummer that's still going strong today and lives in Atlanta. His name is Jimmy Lee. Mm. And um, I got a chance to train under him during that time. And I was doing marching band and I I went on to play in jazz band. And and, um, then I would say around my 11th grade year, the band that my dad used to play with, Robert Newton and Lotus Feet, um, rest in peace, Robert Newton, because he just passed away. Uh, I'm sorry to hear Robert, that. Yeah, Robert took me under his wing and taught me music theory. And and so it, it was like basically, and then I joined his band. So basically at night, I was playing in nightclubs. And in the daytime, I was going to high school, juggling that with marching band and homework and things like that. Hmm. And um, I'm just going because there's so much I could tell about that era. You know, that's, that's what my high school years uh, were based upon. And um, then that's also the 11th or 12th, well, my 12th grade year, 
I got a chance to meet um, through Jimmy Lee. Jimmy Lee had already, Jimmy Lee moved from Columbia to Atlanta. So when my sister uh, went to high school, I mean, when she went to college, she went to college in Atlanta. And we, of course, we had to move her down there. And when we got there, I called Jimmy Lee. And I said, Jimmy, I'm in town. I'm in town. I want, I want a drum lesson. And Jimmy said, well, I could teach you, but I want to turn you on to this guy that I listen to now. And this drummer's name was Marcus Williams. And... um who I talk about a lot, you know, because, you know, I learned so much from Marcus, especially on the foot foot technique. Hmm. You know, um, this, you know, Marcus is amazing when it comes to the things that he can do with one pedal that I see people do with two pedals. <laughs> no, seriously. I believe you. Yeah, this, this dude's single foot pedal technique is out of this world. And he's not doing heel-toe. It's... it's You'd have to get with him in order to understand. So basically, Jimmy said, "Jimmy said, man, I can't teach no more. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna turn you on to Marcus Williams." And I was like, "Wow, Marcus Williams!" And I said, "Wow, wow, you know, all right." And he gave me his number, so I called this guy Collect. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know him, you know. I called him Collect, and I was like, "Hey, hey," uh, they said, "You got a call from a John Blackwell. You take He accepted. Nice, and it, and it was four in the morning. That's what was, was crazy about it. It was four in the. <laughs> Why'd morning. you call it four in the morning? I, I was, I was a uh, sixteen Earthy years, right? <laughs> you know, I was sixteen, and and I didn't know any better. You know, I right. was any better at that age. I said, "Hey, uh, this John Blackwell, and uh, my my old teacher Jimmy D told me to call you." But, and, and Mark is like, yeah, kid. I said, hey, I heard you're playing tonight. Can I come? Can you put me on the guest list? Because <laughs> I couldn't get in. Right. You know, I was 16. I can't get in clubs. And he was playing at this place called the uh, called the A Train, and uh, and it was an underground at the underground mall in Atlanta. And and he uh, he put me on the list. I came in, and the the owner was like, the owner said, all right, look, kid. I can lose my liquor license for you being in here. Right. I want you to sit in the back, listen to the band, and when they're done, get out. Right. And I was like, yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> and the band was set up on this stage, which was a real cool stage. It was set up above the bar. Oh, nice. So, so I'm watching Mo, Marcus and, his, and the trio that he was playing with, and they, they everything he did that night was just blue, blue was blown out the water. I was like, oh my God. But he and they did they did a butterfly by Herbie Hancock. Mm -hmm. And they gave Marcus this long solo. And basically I went from, yeah, all right, that's cool. What? <laughs> oh my oh wait a minute. I don't see no double pedal. Oh my God. So I ran through the club. Now I was supposed to stay in the back. I ran through the club, up the stairs, onto the bar, onto the stage, and I'm I'm under his seat looking at him. He's playing on this small four. He's playing on this small five piece slingling kit with an eighteen inch kick drum, ten, twelve, fourteen, tom toms, and and he had this Camco pedal, this single Camco pedal, and his foot is doing things I've never seen before. I'm talking about. And 
I'm not I'm not exaggerating when I say that. Jeez. He's and his hands are going crazy over all over the drums. And I'm just like, oh my God. And he saw me, he looked down and he noticed that I was sitting there just with my mouth wide open looking at his foot. And he starts laughing and he goes faster. And, <laughs> and from that point on, I I found every excuse I could to go to Atlanta to visit my sister. Right. Just so I could go see Marcus play. And when I would get to Atlanta, I would I would meet Marcus at the club because I couldn't still couldn't get in during mm-hmm. that time. Uh I say, hey man, can I carry a Tom Tom in for you? Or <laughs> so I was acting like it's roadie, nice, just so I could get in the club. And I just watched him, and, and he only gave me two or three lessons. But the lessons he gave me, I still work on them to this day. Hmm. And there's these certain patterns. I and he talks about them on on my second DVD, the Hudson Music uh, Master Series, because mm-hmm. because people are not really well aware of him. I. I took it upon myself to give him thirty minutes on my um on my second DVD. So nice. he he's on my second DVD. You, you can check him out. The guy and that video don't speak. That video doesn't do him justice. He he killed it. It made me look bad on my own video, <laughs> but it still don't do him justice of what he can do. So that was that was that. So finally, my twelfth my twelfth grade year. Um, like I always told you, people whenever somebody didn't bring a band to um with them to Columbia, they would always call my dad. Mm-hmm. So Billy Eckstein, I don't know if you, mm-hmm. yeah, Billy Eckstein came came to town in '91, and they were looking for my dad. At least that's what I thought. I don't know, you know. I, I called my dad up when they when they called me, and I said, "Hey, dad." Uh, uh, I think uh, Billy Eckstein just called the house for you because my dad was also a computer engineer for Southern Bell, the telephone company. Mm-hmm. He was a computer engineer for them. And that was his main main gig. I said, Dad, I think Billy Eckstein is calling for you. And he said, no. He said, you do it. I want you to do it. So I, that was my first big opportunity. I was 17. I got a chance to play with Billy Eckstein. And it was for um, Alex English uh, charity event. And Alex English used to be a uh, forgot who he used to play. He, I mean, he was ba- he was a famous basketball player. I forgot who he used to play with, but um, he was a major guy in the NBA at the time. And um, he had some big charity event where he brought Billy Eckstein to town. So hmm. that was my first big gig. And then um, after that, I went on to uh, I went on to Berkeley after that, and um, and my Berkeley years were really, really cool. You know, got a chance to uh, play every night or every weekend, which was my my lunch money because my dad stopped sending money for me. <laughs> <laughs> he said it's time for you to start earning for yourself. Right. You know, whether you get a job or whether you go find yourself a gig and earn your earn your keep. I'm paying for your college, but yeah. you're gonna have to pay for your lunch money. Which is a which is a valuable lesson. At yeah, that it was too. a great great lesson. Great lesson. I I was mad during that time, but right once I started gigging, I you know how could you get mad? You know, mm-hmm. like I was kind of appreciate. I appreciate it. You know, so I started playing at this place called Wally's, which everybody you can think of used to play at Wally's. Wally's is Wally's Cafe, which is still in Boston. That place has been around since 1947. Hmm. Everybody from Miles Davis to you know Charlie Parker, you know, you know, 
play at this club. I'm pretty sure Roy, Roy Haynes, who just celebrated his 90th birthday, yeah. happy birthday, Roy, you know, um, played at Wally's. And in the 70s, uh, Tommy Campbell, I'm sure Vinny played there, maybe. Yeah. Jeff Tate. Was it like a, was a straight ahead club? It was straight ahead club during that time, but then it turned into now it's now it's Latin night, blues night, funk night, jazz cool. night, you know, and um and it's still going strong to this day. That's awesome. You know, and um so I used to play there all the time just for stage experience. Mm-hmm. And um and uh, then I, I used to play at this place called Rouse Cafe in Boston. And I kept that gig for a long time with a guy named Herman Johnson, who a great saxophonist. Um, he played that club for 17 years. So mm-hmm. I got a chance to play it during my Berkeley years. I got a chance to play with, play with him every weekend. You know, I thought I was rolling back during those days. <laughs> I was like, man, I'm making money on the weekends, weekdays. Yeah. All right. You know? How long were you at Berkeley? Uh, three and a half years. Yeah. You know, I got pulled out, which goes on to the professional career, uh, which I, I'm all, I was already professional, but right. as far as road being a road pro, uh, I started working with Cameo because um, actually it was this one night where I was. It was the the night I got called. Uh, should I go back to? I have to go back to '94. That was '95 when I got called. But '94, I got I got called. Me and my friend Jetro De Silva. We got called to Atlanta to um, to audition for BB and CC Winans. Hmm. And though BB and CC, they 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 I guess their people, their staff already already had chose who they wanted to use. Uh, you know, that's that's once again the political world right. that we get into that's going on these days. Uh, all right, going on back then. You know, the political world. Right, right, right. You politically get choose, you know, for something because you're in a certain clique. And Atlanta has a lot of cliques. Mm-hmm. Um, we they would, we came down there thinking that it was going to be fair and square. But we were so hungry for the gig. We played with so much fire that they were blown away. And they was like, oh, man, we, we might have to have second thoughts about. <laughs> so they they told us to stay for a couple more days. And we was like, oh, my God, I think we're going to get this gig. But, of course, the powers that be were pitching a fit like, oh, if you you told us we we're going to do it. If you if you choose them, we're going to tell everybody that this audition was fixed. So, of course, they got the gig. Me and Jetro, we spent all our money just to go down there. So we had we didn't know how we were going to get back to Boston. And we were all sad about not getting the gig. But at the same time, you know, we were just like, oh, no, we're broke. How are we going to get back to school? So my dad paid for us to go back to school because my dad was living in Atlanta. So right, right. State. So my dad got us back to, Berk- back to Berkeley. We went back to our regular gigs. But there was this one guy that was a good friend of Jimmy Lee, who was my first teacher. He had a friend named Freddie Boy. And Freddie Boy was at the audition, and he said, John, I heard you up there. That You should have got that gig. Um, and, hey, I'm t- I tell you what. I want, I want your number. I might just have something for you in about six months. And, you know, he said, I want you to stay in touch with me. He said, I'm going to call you if, if this thing happens. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just say anything to make me feel better. All right, All right. whatever. Well, 
95 comes around, which is six months later. It was, I think it was July, August, uh, no, it was September. It was September of 94 when that audition happened. And then February was when I, this one night I was coming from uh, February 6th, actually. I was coming back. You do have from, a good memory. <laughs> uh, everybody says that. I, you know, February 6th, uh, I'm coming back from a gig at Rouse. And that night, Herman Johnson was really beating me up about my plan. Thus goes back to all the chop stuff. Right, right, Not right. listening and not being a team player like a lot of young guys today. <laughs> uh, uh, I, was, I was, he beat me up so bad about it. I was so down. I was, you know, not beat me up physically, but, you know, verbally. And I was just sad, and I'm walking my head down. I'm get, I go, in, I get in the cab to go back to the dormitories, and um, my friends were in the car, and they were like, Jetro was in the car as well. Jetro was like, Don, John, don't worry about it, man. Don't worry about it. You know, just gotta, you know, just, just, you know, pay attention. Shake it, yeah, shake, shake it, it off, and off and learn and, from it, and learn from it, man. You know. So I get in the dormitories. And I'm get. I just finished loading my. It was so early in the morning. I just finished loading my drums back into my room, and um, the phone rings in the hallway. The dormitory phone, which is the number I gave Freddie Boy. Mm -hmm. So I answer the phone. And I'm like, "Hello," and he said, "John, it's Freddie Boy." <laughs> and I was like, hey, "Freddie Boy, what's up, man? How you doing? Early in the morning. What's going on? So, so early." He's like, "Remember, I told you I might have something for you." And I was like, yeah. He says, well, Cameo is going on tour, and the gig is yours if you want it. I said, yeah, I want it. Nice. He said, well, you got it. I said, but, but, I said, but I just, I just, my dad just paid for me to come back to, back to school, you know. You know, he said, you know, he said, well, you got 15 minutes to let me know if you, if you want this or not. He hung, he hung up. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. Now, my dad, as being that he worked for the, phone company and all that was a hard man to reach especially that early in the morning and you know back then you remember we had we used to have pagers yeah yeah, yeah. so i had to page my dad and my dad would have to call me back normally when i page my dad it takes him hours hours to call me back and i had 15 minutes to answer answer freddie boy right so i paged my dad and he paged me Right back, and I was like, "Thank you, oh my God, I can't believe you paid me right back." So I said, "Dad, I said, Cameo just asked me. Cameo wants me to go on the road. You know, uh, what should I do?" And my dad was like, "Well, son, this is the reason I sent you to Berkeley. You know, so you can get education and uh, and be prepared for something something like a big opportunity like this." Right. Well, there this you is, have it. Uh, I'm, I'm telling you, you should do it. But I'm telling you right now, if you take this gig, I'm not paying for you to go back to school. And I was like, oh my god! I said, <laughs> uh, yeah, I can do it, Dad. I can do it. I can do it. You know. So my dad got. Luckily, my dad was able to get his his money back because it was still early, and you know, school had just started. So he was able to get his money back, and um, I went on. I called Freddie back, of course. And Freddie called Cameo and called Larry Blackman, who's the leader and, and also the drummer of Cameo. And, um, you know, just being on the phone with Larry was just right. freaking me out. I was just like, <laughs> oh, my God. And Larry was like, hey, Johnny, how you doing? And 
I was like, my name, my name is John. He said, hey, Johnny, how you doing? Okay, I'm Johnny. Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> so he, he says, can you think you can do this gig, John? And I was like, yeah, Larry, I'm, I'm a big fan. I've been, I've been watching y'all since I was a kid, right. which thus goes back to the times where I would practice and I would, you know, with my memory, I would memorize the drum parts. And most of the songs that I would try to memorize were cameo songs. And also, one of the hardest beats I had, I, I couldn't figure it out when I was a kid, cause, but my dad could play it note for note, was uh, She's Strange by Cameo, where Larry starts off the song with this killer drum part. Um, I would learn that. I would memorize all the other songs. And and also, my whenever Cameo came to town, I, I used to go see them. Right. Like, the first time I saw Cameo was when I was seven, and Larry was Larry was still playing drums, you know, at that time, and they were opening up for Rick James on the Street Songs tour, hmm. and they blew Cam they, Rick, Cameo blew Rick out the water. I'm sorry. <laughs> and then I saw him in '82 when they did the Alligator Woman tour, right. which was the title of their '82 album, Alligator Woman. Mm-hmm. Jonathan Moffat, Jonathan Sugarfoot Moffat was playing drums for him, and um, I was just like, wow, you know. So thus goes back to. They fly me down, you know, to to Atlanta from Boston. And this is something that was real hard for me, hard for me to 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 do. Because a friend of mine who used to give me gigs when I was on school break, he was the drummer in in the he was the drummer that they were gonna take out. But he wasn't I guess he wasn't cutting it like Larry wanted, which is why they called me. Hmm. So I, I, Larry, Larry's in the in the the dining area of the rehearsal place. I think it was called SIR, mm-hmm. and uh, and I was like, oh my god, Mr. Blackman, pleasure to meet you, and, you know. And Larry says, all right, go into go into the uh, go into the um, rehearsal space and and uh, get yourself all all lined up with the band. And I go in there, and I'm just like getting ready to get tuned up. But before I got into the room, which Larry's bodyguard was taking me in there, um, I see I see my friend out in the middle of the uh, of the hallway practicing on his practice pad, and he saw me coming, and he stood up and he said, "John, what are you doing here?" <laughs> and before I could say anything, uh, the bodyguard says, "John, in the room now." And I said, "Oh man, I gotta go." So. He saw me going to the same room he was practicing, so he already knew what was about to happen. Right, right, right. So Larry, of course, pulled him to the side and told him what the deal was, and which was a hard thing for me, you know. But he understood, and he shook my hand and said, "Congratulations." Well, that was I, cool. Um. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's that's how I got the cameo gig. Man, at least you. It wasn't like uh, a J.R. Robinson. He got the gig for um, for why am I drawing a blank? Um. Uh, Rufus, he went to the he went to sound check just to like yeah. check him out because they were in they saw him the night before play. They're like, oh, you should come to our yeah. show tomorrow. He goes yeah. he goes to the show the next day, and whoever was playing drums for him, they fired him on the spot and hired Jr. Wow! At sound check of the gig. That, that's that that's sad. Yeah, you know and that 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 was, and honestly, it wasn't cool. Yeah, it was not cool at all. You know, but you know. I, you know, that's that's the that's the music business. Yes, it is. <laughs> I mean, I've I've 
I've I've been on both ends of the, of the sword. I would say, right? You know, right? I've been on. A, I I had the same thing happen to me a few times. You know, mm-hmm. for whatever the reason, politically or is uh, if it's something that I wasn't doing right. Right, right, right. And and I I, I have enough. You know, I have enough courage to say it. You know, mm-hmm. some people like to keep their 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 falls a, a secret, but right. you know, I I usually would like you know I spill it out. I let, I let people know because whatever good or bad that I've done, I want the young people to learn from it. Sure, sure. And what so, you know, mistakes are great if you if you learn from them. I'm I'm a big fan of of mistakes and talking about them and you know and being vocal about them. Yeah. Definitely. Support from this session comes from both Musicians Institute and Dream Symbols, two companies that I'm very thankful for them being a part of this podcast and them keeping the lights on here. And rather than read through their ads, I'm just going to take a quick moment of silence for John. Now more from the late, great John Blackwell. So, so the cameo gig, you know, I, I, the audition, I started playing with, 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 with them and I was playing songs, which uh, Larry word for word said, wow, this kid knows song we forgot we wrote. <laughs> and thus from there, I, I was on tour with cameo for three years straight. Uh, matter of fact, uh, one of the shows, I, one of my last shows with them is on YouTube. Is cameo, and all you gotta do is go on YouTube and put cameo live, nineteen ninety seven, and it was when we did the Sinbad Summer Jam, which was a great show. Mm-hmm. I was maybe I think I was nineteen or twenty Earth years that time. Wow. Um, and things started slowing down, you know, with cameo to the point to where. Everybody was telling me, man, you should move to L.A. You should move to L.A. So I started going out to L.A. here and there. And uh, one of my friends uh, who saw me, who saw me, he was a drummer with Patti LaBelle. He saw me playing with Cameo. We were on the same show. We were playing at the Superdome for uh, the Essence Festival. And all the Patti LaBelle guys went to the side of the stage to watch me. Because when, when I got the Cameo gig, some people thought I was Larry Blackman's son. Oh, really? Uh, some people just said, man, you hear about this young kid playing with Cameo? And uh, so the word spread it around about me being with Cameo and, and uh, being so young and then also playing their beats note for note. You know, so Patty Bell's people heard about it, of course, and they were on the side of the stage watching. The drummer's name was John Parrish, who uh, he lives in L.A. and he plays for Earth on the Fire now. Mm. Well, John... February of 98. Notice how everything happened in February. Yeah. <laughs> uh, February. February is a good month for you. Yeah, February is a good month. You know, February 98, um, uh, we, uh, things were slow. You know, one thing Cameo had on the, on the, on the, on the agenda was like a couple of shows, you know, that were coming up not too soon, not too soon enough, I would say. John Paris calls me. I'm at my mom's house chilling. You know, because I was going back and forth between Atlanta and my mom's house. Right. You know, my dad lived in Atlanta. So John calls me and says, hey, John, uh, what are you doing? I said, well, nothing right now. He said, I need you to cover for me on these on these Patty Bell gigs I got. 
And I said, okay, well, what's going on? He said, well, I'm getting ready to do Magic Johnson uh, Hour. You know, Magic Johnson had a TV show at one mm-hmm. time. Yeah. And he was playing, he was going to, he went, he went to do that with Shilly. And I said, yeah, man, I can do it. So he, he sent me some tapes. I learned the shows and um, I had to, I had to give Larry and Cameo my notice, which they wasn't too happy about, you know, <laughs> but except for the guitar player, Charlie Singleton was the one that, you know, said, I want you to, I want you to go ahead and do that gig, John, you know, because um, you got people know who you are now and that's how far that's how far Cameo can take you, you know. Right. Done this gig. People know who you are. That's about as far as you can go with us. And he, I want you to go do the gig. Of course, Larry was mad that Charlie said that. But, you know, you know that's another It's story. nice to have somebody <laughs> in your corner like that, though. Yeah. You know? yeah, and he still is. You know, I, I, me and him are like the best of, best of buddies now, as always. Because he was the one that looked out for me on the road, you know, being so young. You know, my dad... My dad told told those guys when I first got the cameo gig, he said, "You see, I'll take care of my son. <laughs> don't let him. Don't let. Don't. I, I know. I know what you guys. You know. I know what you guys are about. Uh, right. And and there wasn't nothing bad. Cameo. It, all of them are uh, awesome dudes. You know. Mm-hmm. But you know. But you know. It's just the road life. Yes, I do. <laughs> yeah. Get a little crazy out there. You yes, know? it can. <laughs> And of course, my my dad been there, done that, right. and also one years ago when Cameo when Cameo first got started, my dad's band opened up for Cameo. Oh, really? And Larry had to use my my dad's drums for one of their very first gigs. Hmm. So it's like wow, you know, go that during the seventies, dust all the way to ninety five, and for them to meet again, of course, you know, right, right, right. yeah. So you know, because you. You know, I mean, so so basically, um, Charlie was the one that looked out for me. Nice. And so Charlie, when Charlie found, when I told Charlie about the gig, he was like, "I want you to do that gig," because I felt bad. Because I'm 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 somebody that tries to be loyal, and I was I I wanted to do it, but I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to leave the cameo gig, but it was I had to make a choice. And Charlie said, "John, stop tripping. I want you to do that gig." So Charlie says. All right, John, I want you to answer this question for me. If you didn't have Cameo and Pat LaBelle called you, would you do it? I said, heck yeah. <laughs> well, then do the gig. He said, he said, all right, fine, you're fired. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was like, all right. <laughs> so I went off I went off with Pat LaBelle. And it was um, the first night they wanted me to watch John play. And then the second night, they were, I guess, I can't, they were in Washington, D.C., now that I remember. We were playing in Washington, D.C., so the second night, out of nowhere, in the middle of the show, they were getting ready to do New Attitude and and they did some other songs. And John gets off the drums and throws me on the drums hmm. while they're doing New Attitude, you know. And of course, they, the arrangements are different from the record. Right. That goes back to my memory. So I'm listening to him the first night, and then the second night, I played it note for note, just like how John would have played, it, and just I put myself and my heart into it. And I played the song, and Patty's jumping all over the stage and just going crazy. You know, she's just singing her heart out. She turns around and had no idea that it was another drummer, myself. That's awesome. On the drums, and she said, "Oh my God, this is y'all say hello to my new drummer." <laughs> <laughs> and what I didn't know is, of course, John knew was that once once he said yes to the Magic Johnson show, 
it was no, it was, it was a door no return for him to right. go back to Patty. Patty right, was right. like, "All right, if you take this gig, I'm, I'm, you got to get me another drummer." Right. He all he told me was that I was filling in, but right, I really right. was being prepped up to to, to do, do the it. gig. Right. So the uh, so the third night, I had to play the whole show, hmm. and um, and of course, I met the infamous late great Bud Ellison, Patty's um, piano. Musical director who was her musical director for thirty five years. And at that time, he was kind of sick. You know, he had you know he was in remission from cancer. Mm-hmm. But he came back for the tour, and they introduced him to me. And he was like, "All right, kid, I want you to watch me." <laughs> you know, and he would we would start these songs, and he would throw all these cues and hits at the drop of a hat that you had to catch those hits. And yeah, don't miss them. If you if you missed them, oh my God, it was it was it was a lot. It was hell to pay. Excuse my friend. <laughs> no, that's fine. I know a guy that was on tour with Joe Cocker and the piano player. You know, he they he blew. This guy was playing drums and he blew one of the one of the hits. And then that night, the the drummer or the piano player walked up to him. He said, "Don't miss that tomorrow." So then the next day he missed it again and the piano player punched him in the face. Oh man. He's That's, like, I told you not to miss it. He's like the it, third it, night I didn't miss it. it. It was just like, I was just like, um, <laughs> that was just like, Bud. yeah, but so, um, so I guess this first, the first night I played, John was already, John had already left the first night playing without John being behind me. We were doing the song on my own by Patty and Michael McDonald. Mm-hmm. And, I figured I w- I started treating the gig like when I was doing the Berkeley Singer Showcase concerts, and I was just trying to play very very dynamical, you know, you know, just trying to be sensitive to the singer. And Bud kept looking at me, seeing how soft I was playing. Now we we play in front of five thousand, six thousand people, All right? Thus versus playing in front of eight hundred people at Berkeley, so it's different, you know, and plus a different atmosphere. You know, um, Bud gets off the piano because they had two piano players. So if Bud got up, somebody would cover Bud. Mm-hmm. So Bud gets off the piano and walks over to the drums. And I'm smiling, thinking like, hey, I'm doing a great job, ain't I? <laughs> and Bud used to wear these, these these shades. So he takes his shades off. or He slants them down, actually, from a little bit just for me to look at his eyes. And Bud says, hey, kid. Listen here, uh, and he cursed. He said, "Listen here, you mother." <laughs> I was like, "Oh, I don't curse. So I can't say what he said." He said, "This ain't no tippy tap gig. This is a rock and roll gig. You better hit them drums harder than when you hit them now. You want this job? Do you want this job?" <laughs> I was like, "Yes, sir. Yes, sir." In the middle of the gig. <laughs> in the middle, in the middle of Patty singing on my own. <laughs> so I started hitting harder. You know, on my own. And he gets back on the piano, and then he blows a kiss at me, like, I love you, I love you, I love you. That's <laughs> this son, this ain't no tippy-tap gig. <laughs> yeah, he's like, this ain't no tippy-tap gig. This is a rock and roll gig. <laughs> and and um, I started hitting them drums harder. And, and from that point, he was like, um, from that point, um, he was, um, you know, he was, he was happy with me. But right. every time I made a mistake, and you need I, those guys like that. I remember yeah. I, I was playing too much behind this guitar player, and he turned around. He said, how come every time I go to take a solo, you play like, and then he said the F word. 
Yeah. <laughs> He's like, why did, you know, why, why I don't understand why, why you play like that. I was right. like, oh, sorry. I didn't know. I thought I was cool, but I guess not. Yeah. <laughs> so how did, so that's, that's, that's uh, I'm going to say this now, now we can move on. That's that. Um, but would throw cues sometimes in the shows as things went along, but would throw cues like from behind the curtain. <laughs> he would go in the back in the dark and throw cues for whatever reason he went backstage. And we had to watch him. And if you missed the cue while he's in the dark, he'd run on stage and curse you out. <laughs> and point it, and use two fingers, the peace sign, to point at his eyes. Watch me! Watch me! <laughs> I was like, watch me, but I can't see you in the dark. I can't see you. <laughs> so... So things were great, you know, right. and, um, and of course, you know, I started getting girlfriends and things like that. And right. That kind of, you know, got in the way of things. That's another thing I want to tell these, 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 everybody, you know, don't let the, don't let your personal feelings get in the way of your drumming or your whatever instrument you play. Mm-hmm. Once I got rid of this one girlfriend, my, I went back to playing like killing, you know, just just trying to kill the drums. And this one particular night, um, matter of fact, the first night of this tour, I had already dumped this girl and was like messing with my mind and my feelings. Prince was in the audience. Mm. And I was, I, of course, that, that was the night I was back on, on my game and not thinking about no girls and just wailing across the drums with Patty. And, and Prince was like, Prince told me he said this. And he said, man, Who's that drummer? If I can get that, if I can get that kid in my band, I can really make something out of him. And they said Larry Graham, Larry Graham was with him, mm-hmm. and they said, "Hey man, let's take a closer look from backstage." Now, a year before that, when I was with this girl and things were all messing with me, they thought after they saw me this year, after they saw me that year when they were when they took a closer look, they thought I was the same guy. They thought I was a different guy from last year. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. They said, oh, you the same drummer? Oh, we thought you were somebody new. <laughs> we thought you sucked. <laughs> yeah. They didn't say they thought I no, sucked. No, I'm just kidding. They, I'm just kidding. No, 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 no. They didn't say I thought they thought I sucked, but they, they knew something was whack with my playing. Right. You know, that's that year, you know, which is my what I'm trying to tell people, you know, don't let your 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 your, your personal life get in the way of your um your drumming or your yeah. your whatever instrument and it and it's it easily happens man it, it, it easily affects your what you do yeah i mean i remember uh, i went through like a rough time with a girl too and like just the gigs i just wasn't playing well your, your gig suffered yeah you know for a just while like mine. yeah just like mine but yeah. once i once i put once i pushed her out of the picture i went back to my old self mm-hmm. so prince watched from backstage and Larry Graham as well. The bass player saw Larry and freaked out. As you know, Larry's the funkiest bass player on the planet. Right, right. <laughs> and he said he, he he saw Prince as well. So he said, "John, I'm on. I'm watching Patty, and Patty's going her, doing her thing, and I'm just trying to stick with Patty because every time I every time Patty played, Patty told me when she first heard me playing with her, she said, "Baby, every night." When I get it, when I go into my thing, I want you to kick me in the butt. <laughs> Baby, kick me in the butt. I like what you're doing, John. So I was kicking her in the butt. Meanwhile, the bass player's like, 
John, John, John. And I finally said, man, what? He said, look, look. So I guess Prince and Larry saw him point at them. So they stood further in the back to where it was dark. So I couldn't see them. And I'm glad uh-huh. they did that because if, if they would have saw, if I would have saw them, I probably would have started trying to show out. Yeah. I was just thinking that. Like, why would he do that to you? I'd be like, I. I no, no. He, 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 he was excited to see Larry and Prince. Sure. Sitting there watching. Sure. So he just wanted me to see it. Or I'd have been like, man, don't tell me until after the gig. <laughs> well, well, I, I couldn't see I couldn't see them. So I was like, man, I don't know who that is. Focus on Patty. Right. We're playing right now. Come on now. Right. Get back in the game. So finally, uh, after the show is over, bass player throw his he threw his bass off and let his bass fall to the floor. He's like, Oh my god. You know, he starts running towards Larry Graham. And he gets to Larry. Larry pushes him out the way. Larry just threw him out the way and starts walking towards me. And I'm just sitting there. <laughs> Everything started going slow motion at that point. So I'm just like, oh, my God, this is Larry Graham. So Larry comes up to me in his big, deep voice and says, oh, my God, kid. Oh, my God, kid. I, I feel I feel a connection between me and you. And he said, here's my card. Will you stay in touch with me? And I was like, yes, I will. <laughs> and then next thing you know, these two bodyguards come up with these earpieces, look like they bodyguarding the president or something, like they secret service. They move out of the way, and Prince walks through the middle of them, and I start pinching myself at that point. I was like, all right, I got to be dreaming now. And um, and Prince came up to me, and he said, my God, you're unbelievable. <laughs> this is my wife, Maite. Um, John, will you stay in touch with me? And I was like, yes. <laughs> you're like, yeah, you're Prince. Of course I will. And then next thing you know, he walks off. He, he looks at me and he just says, I'll see you soon. He walked off. And I was just like, wait a minute. He didn't get my number. He didn't get my. <laughs> he's, uh, he's Prince. He doesn't. I feel like he should just like disappear and not walk yeah, away. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's how it felt. He just. Yeah. This is kind of like Dave Chappelle where he, he walked away and the smoke came out. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of how this was. You Made know? you pancakes like, and everything. No, no, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so we we the tour went on. It was because the tour was Patty LaBelle and Shaka Khan tour. Mm-hmm. So Shaka was going first, and then Patty was going after her. So in New York, we went to Madison Square Garden Theater, not the not the arena. We played the theater, right? And in the theater, we're we're sitting there watching Shaka do her thing. Me, Patty, and Bud, uh, the musical director. So we're like sitting there dancing on the side of the stage, like, oh, Shaka, get it. Oh, Shaka, kill him. Singing, oh man, Shaka singing her butt off. And um, I'm sitting there watching with them, and I kind of felt somebody was watching me. And I was like, man, somebody's watching me. I kind of, I know it. So I don't, something, I feel something weird around me. So I turn around, and in the corner, Prince is sitting there looking at me <laughs> from head to toe, and I was just like, hey, man, what's up? And he just, he nodded his head like to say hello. So I turned around and went back to watching um, Pat. I went back to sitting with Patty and watching Shaka. And um, once again, I said, man, I feel some, somebody's watching me again. I feel, I turned around, Prince is right up on me, you know, and I'm just, you know, like he not, not, not right up on me, but he right. was standing right in front of me at that point behind me. And I turned around, I said, hey, man, how you doing? He goes, Hi. You know, and I was like, oh, man, how's Larry doing? Larry's fine. I was just like, oh, cool, man. So you here to watch the show? Yeah. 
you know. But he was he went he he was there to sit in with Shaka on um, "I Feel for You," the song. I feel uh, for yeah. You. So he was up there to sit in with her on that. So so we're talking, and uh, and I was like, I thought to myself, all right, you're not ever gonna get this chance ever again, possibly. To ask Prince if you could one day jam with him, or, or someday soon, right? Sometime in the future. So I said to myself, man, I'm gonna ask him. I ain't got nothing to lose. So, so before I could open my mouth to say I wanna, I would love to jam with you one day. He, before I could even say anything, he said, I want you to come to Paisley Park and jam with me after the tour. Nice. And I was like, yes, I would love to, man. That'd be, I'd be, that'd be an honor. Wow. You know, and he said, but I want you to do it after the tour. And remember after the tour? And I said, yes, sir. Because he's, he, he's, he likes to jam with people. But when he asks you, to, when he asks you, when he asks you to jam, he, he's not asking you to join his band. Right. Because he, he has been many times where he, he's flown people from all over the world. Like he would fly somebody from Antarctica if they, if he heard they sounded great and you asked him to jam. You fly him over from Antarctica, and after the jam's over, you fly him right back to Antarctica. <laughs> Some people took it. A lot of people in the past took it like, "Hey, y'all, kiss my butt." Prince right. just asked me to join this band. Bye. Mm-hmm. And then they come to find out Prince just wanted to jam. Right. So I went up there, you know, and I'm in Paisley Park. I'm like, wow, I can't believe I'm at Paisley Park, you know. And the tech, the, the tech guy says, "All right, just get adjusted." It's your drums adjusted the way you want it, and um, Prince will be in shortly. So I'm sitting there tuning and getting ready, and Prince walks in. And I'm just like, "Wow, I can't believe it!" You know, and he straps on his guitar and he has a keyboard. You know, and I sit there, I'm playing drums, and he's playing guitar, keyboards, all at once, killing, killing. Too. Right? Yeah, yeah. And then Larry Graham walks in. And um, then we started playing as a power trio. And then after everything was over, he says, thanks, take care. And I was like, what? <laughs> I said, is that it? He said, yeah, I just wanted to jam. I was like, I flew all the way up here just for you to jam? I said, uh-uh. I said, oh, no way. In my mind, I'm saying, oh, no, uh-uh, no way. Right. Prince is walking away. He's walking back to his living quarters of Paisley. And um, before he could reach the door... I said, I got a beat that'll get him. I, I started playing 7779311. Right. Which was a drum machine, actually, mm-hmm. from the Lin drum. And every, every, that, that's, that beat is still a hard beat for a lot of drummers to play to this day. Yeah. But I, being a lefty, being a lefty, I was able to, I was able to figure out how to play the beat correctly by keeping the left hand, keeping the left hand on the hi hat. And I started. I started off the beginning of the beat. When I did that, Prince turned around and his eyes went almost out of his eye sockets. <laughs> and he ran and grabbed because he played everything on that song except the drum machine. So he ran for the bass and he came in on bass just like the record at the same time as the record when the bass came in on the record. Of course, he wrote it, you know, right. and, you know, we, we jammed that for like another 30 minutes. And after that, he started flying me back and forth to Minneapolis, eight months straight, just flying me back and forth whenever I had a break from Patty. And then that, that 
May of 2000, he asked me to be the, the new drummer for New Power Generation. Mm-hmm. And that went on for 14 years. Hmm. Wow. Which brings us to now. Right. You know, except for, you know, I, I did a little short, I did a little short stints here and there. You know, I worked with, I worked with P. Diddy, um, Lauren Hill, and numerous Japanese pop stars that are famous in Japan. You know, just like Prince is big and Madonna's big. These Japan, these Japanese pop stars are like that mega stars in their own country in Japan. Right. Sure. And also um, touring, touring, also toured China with China's biggest pop rock star last year. I did that, and um, you know, I made my own band, John Blackwell Project. Right. Which is um, what's going on right now. I'm working on my my next album, um, Brother Blackwell, and John Blackwell Project 2. You know, I have a new band constructed. You know, the original band was uh, Corey Bernhardt, um, uh, Paul Pesco on guitar, and Will Lee on bass. Nice. So the new band is going to be um, Greg Spiro on keys and alternate Jethro De Silva if either them both, either, either one is not available. Uh, Bruce Bartlett, alternate Mike Scott, and bass Gary Granger. Sweet. And I'm sure you remember Gary from the Schofield mm-hmm. days with mm-hmm. Dennis. Yeah. And um, Brother Blackwell has already been recorded. I'm getting ready to record the rest of the record very soon. And um, Brother Blackwell was written and performed with me, with um, written and perf- written and performed by Chick Corea. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, Chick Corea. Matter of fact, Brother Blackwell, I'm going to release that as a single very soon just to get the hype going for the record. Mm -hmm. You know, being that Chick, you know, Chick wrote it and and the song song has so much of of the essence of Return to Forever in it. Nice. You know, it's got that Return to Forever feel to it. So, you know, me and Chick just did an interview on it too. So I'm going to release that soon. Oh, did you? Yeah. What, uh, is there anywhere we can watch it? Um, I'm gonna post it on YouTube very soon. Oh, okay, cool. It'll be, not YouTube. It, um, I'm gonna post it on my um, face Facebook. Oh, okay. It'll be on my Facebook. But I'll let you know when it. Cool. Yeah, because I would like to show. include it in the in the show notes of the, of yeah. the podcast as well, so everybody yeah. can check that out. So, are you are you performing regularly with Chick, or just working on this project together with him? Uh, Chick just um, worked on on the new album with me. Just you know, with Brother Blackwell. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one song that I, I asked him to put a keyboard solo on. So, he, you know, if time permits, I'm going to have him play a keyboard solo on one of the songs, on another song on the album as well. Nice. Um, but, he, you know, he did say in the future that we, me and him will, you know, play together. Sweet. Soon, you know, I'm just praying, I'm praying it comes very soon. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, chick chick is a monster, man. I actually years ago, uh, I uh, studio that I was working out of the the engineer. Some guy came in and said, "Hey, man, you know this is a, a recordings of my dad when he was a kid, um, or when you know when he was when he was younger um, in these different bands. Do you think that you could put them from reel to reel to CD?" So we're listening to him, and next thing you know, they're like, "Oh yeah, we'd like to introduce this." piano player, you know, young kid or whatever. And it was Chick Corea. 
I'm sorry, son, his son. Um, no, it wasn't. It, it some guy had this guy's dad played in like all of these big bands, and I guess Chick Corea just sat in with this band a couple times. Uh, so it was kind of crazy because we just weren't expecting it, you know. And but it was, uh, yeah, it was Chick Corea playing piano. Oh, so so the big band's dad. Um, yeah, the guy's dad, and I guess yeah, and I guess Chick Corea just ended up sitting in one night uh, or something. Uh, wow. Yeah, it was pretty cool though. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. yeah, man. So, so that's that's, um, and then just recent recently, I did uh, I did Saturday Night Live uh, with D'Angelo. Nice. And um, last year I did the Australian New Zealand D'Angelo tour. I love D'Angelo, man. But but this also goes to the um, the saying. I mean, as I was saying, you have your you have your falls and your your shorts. Mm-hmm. Uh, of things and and you learn from them and I don't know if this is something that I would learn from but uh, D'Angelo is is influenced by so many people and the way he his style of playing is different from any other musician or artist that I've ever played with and and out of my career actually hmm. you know so. With the way he plays things is totally different, you know, where the drummer's in the front and everybody else's, the music, the, the bass and the keys and everything falls behind the drummer, which is, is, is a really weird style, you know, yeah. of neo-soul and hip-hop. And after SNL, after the SNL show, um, he felt like it wasn't enough time to get me prepared for a, his full on show because when we did, we were on the same, we were on the bill with other acts like Common and Angie Stone on the Australian tour where we only had an hour and a few minutes to do do our set. Mm-hmm. I only had six days to rehearse for that, but that was fine because it was only six days to rehearse for that. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, and he, and, you know, I recorded on this next. I recorded on on the. On the, he has an album coming out called Second Coming, and I'm, I recorded on that album, which is the same time he asked me to be his drummer because, you know, not to name anybody, you know, the other drummer he felt like was too jazzy and, you know, doing certain things that he felt like was not part of the music. Right. So um, this is why he um, replaced that drummer with me. You know, and one thing he wanted from me was, you know, because of being funk, having the funk and and being a hard hitter. Um but this tour that he that he's on now, the show was two the show is two and a half to three hours long. He felt like six days wasn't enough time to prepare me for that. So he brought back the other drummer that he that I replaced. Who's he playing with now? Um uh, I'm I am i am not gonna say. Oh, you know. okay. I rather you know, I'm not you know, I don't. I don't like calling names. Right, right. You know, out of respect for you know sure, sure, sure. them. You know, because I mean, but you know, phenomenal player. The player is one of the best players I've ever seen. He's phenomenal. You know, so mm-hmm. that's as much as I'll say. Okay. And you know, I was kind of upset at first. You know, but you know, I understand. You know, but at the same time, I can say D'Angelo don't know me. Like he think he does. Right. And the reason I say that is because you're talking to a guy who's done four and a half hours with Prince. Right. 
and come back and do seven encores. Mm-hmm. You know, and then go to another club, go to go from the arena to a nightclub and play another three, four hours till the sun comes up. Right. So you wonder, and then also my memory. You know, six right. hours, six six um six days, six days is is nothing. You know. Mm-hmm. I mean, but out of respect, I I took it like a champ. Right. I was, I, you know, I, my my head down was for a couple of days, but as always, God, you know, got his ways, and he basically said, "Get, get, get up, stop tripping, do right. you, do your thing, mm-hmm. get the John Blackwood Project second album out, put that Chick Corea track out, and and get back to your craft." Right. You know? Right. You know. Nobody's perfect. You, you're not going to have a perfect track record of just killing a gig and moving on to the next gig and doing the same thing. Right. And nobody gonna, gets every gig, you know? Yeah, right. Yeah, you know, you have your pitfalls. But at the same time, you'd be thankful. At least you did Saturday Night Live with him. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And you did one tour with him, so, you know. Yeah. And, you know? I mean, you did 14 years with Prince, too, which is like, yeah. man, I would who, love to do that. Who could say that, you know? Right, right. Yeah. I would love so, that gig. Well, I'm so, glad to hear that 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 you took it well because I think that uh, you know I speak for for everyone out there that you're definitely a, an influence to to all of us and your your playing is is just absolutely amazing and I know that the the phone will be ringing very shortly I'm sure I hope so <laughs> Bill's starting to pile up that's what happens <laughs> <laughs> but you know I mean that's something else that and you know I can I can honestly say I I question. I don't, I don't, I don't question it. I, I, I just wonder and I scratch my head. Like, like I, I hear that all the time. Oh man, you, you're a big influence on my plane. Uh, oh man, you, oh my God. You know, and I'm just like, what makes me so different than the next drummer? Right. Uh, uh, but I, I, I could question it, but I don't. And I just, you know, I just take it in a humble way and say, thank you. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I can tell you what I think is different with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, you know, I appreciate it. Yeah, but, man. Uh, yeah, um, you had some other questions. I think I, I, I told you I go I go on for days when that's, I talk. That's what we're here for. I think we might have to split this interview up into two. It's closing on two hours here. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I think that I think that you definitely answered all my questions, and I know that the the listeners got a ton of information out of it as well um i mean it was it was great having you man we should we should do this again yeah we have to uh, definitely i've been wanting to write a book <laughs> you should uh, well, of course the book would pertain things both sides of, of of john blackwell like personal and musical mm-hmm. you know i mean like a lot of the things i went through personally with like you know, losing my mom, my dad, and my my two year old daughter. Jeez, you know, which which affected it has a big effect on who I am today. I'm sure, and I'm sorry to hear that, man. Oh yeah, you know it's okay. You know, without without that strong faith in God, you know, I I don't know if I'd be talking to you right now. Right. <laughs> yeah, but um, you know, you you. That's also bouncing back, you know. Right. And staying strong. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, man. You know, that's me. <laughs> I like it, man. Well, thank you very much for doing oh. this, for taking the time to chat. I really appreciate it. 
I really, really do. And I, like I said, man, you're an inspiration to, to a lot of us. So I appreciate you taking the time. I I enjoyed it. It was fun. It was my pleasure. It was my pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. There you are. The one and only John Blackwell Jr. May he rest in peace. And thank you so much for listening to this. And please send your thoughts and condolences to his wife, to his family. You can do that by connecting all, through all of John's social media channels. And I'll link up to it in the show notes as well by going to drummersresource.com forward slash session 283. You can find that. And now turn this podcast off and uh, and go listen to some of John Blackwell's drumming. Until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. And I will be talking to you soon. Peace. <laughs>